The world of historical letters and documents reflects the history of mankind, who our forefathers were, what our heritage is, and what our future may hold. For nearly 30 years, they have kept me fascinated as a window into the lives of our heroes, a time machine into the past that daydreams are made of, as a means to bring into our presence the people who have made Western civilization what it is. They have enabled me to see the characters of history as people not unlike ourselves, with many of the human concerns, foibles, fears, and aspirations that we all have today. A letter by Marie Antoinette shows an unexpected side when she refuses the chance for freedom if her children cannot escape with her. She closes her letter with, we must find another opportunity. Benjamin Franklin, the scientifically minded statesman, taunted King George in a letter written midway through the American Revolution. Perhaps you comfort yourselves that our loss of blood is as great as yours, but there is a great difference in the facility of repairing that loss between an old body and a young one. America adds to her numbers annually. She grows faster than you can diminish her and will outgrow all the mischief you can do to her. Have you the same prospects? A Thomas Jefferson letter written in 1795 describes his retirement for public life, perhaps the earliest documented midlife crisis. Thank you. I have it in contemplation to banish pen, ink, and paper from my farm. What the country would have lost if Jefferson, yet to be president, had not changed the feeling he so strongly expressed in this letter. Two years before his death, Jefferson, in the most unexpected and uncharacteristic letter I have owned by him, proposed the deportation of all newborn children of slaves to Santo Domingo. Through three pages, he describes the danger to the United States of having a population of slaves which multiplies faster than white people, the economic necessity of not freeing the slaves, but the need to solve a problem which otherwise will have to be faced by future generations. I've always felt that the most important lesson we can learn from knowing these people as complete human beings is that they accomplished what they did despite personal struggles, struggles that too many of us use as an excuse for not even attempting to develop potential talents. Even in our modern world of word processors, computers, and television news, documents play a major role in recording the goings-on of mankind. One of the most remarkable groups of presidential papers I have handled gave an inside view of Ronald Reagan that was quite unlike that painted by many commentators and observers who have frequently attributed Reagan's rhetoric and eloquence to his speechwriters. The collection consisted of handwritten drafts of letters and speeches during his last two years as governor of California. These drafts show Reagan, at that time at least, to be the creator of his very articulate statements. Reagan wrote, we should be less concerned with buying affection, but direct our energies to earning respect. This is quite a job, but you'd be surprised how little real strain when you actually base all decisions on what you honestly believe is right and not just politically expedient. Everyone wants economy until it touches their pet boondoggle. Now everybody's mad at me, but I can always go back to the ranch. But the popular president hasn't always been the best judge of other politicians. He wrote in August of 1968, Agnew is quite a guy. He'll grow on people, and they'll like him better as they get to know him. <laughs> the anti-nuclear movement of today would certainly be heartened by a letter I recently had by the man whose theories made it all possible, Albert Einstein. In 1952, he wrote, that he was disgusted by the course atomic energy has taken in the hand of short-sighted politicians. 
he continued, the continuation of the existence of human beings is in serious doubt. Richard Nixon's early feelings about Vietnam are expressed in a letter he wrote to Henry Cabot Lodge, at that time the ambassador to South Vietnam. He compared America's role in that country to the Third Reich, commenting at the end, this smacks of the Hitler era. The world of collecting historical letters and documents can be described as beginning about the time of the Renaissance in Northern Europe, 1525, and continuing to the present day. Persons interested in ancient history can collect examples of hieroglyphic writing from Egypt, Roman and Greek writing carved in stone, the earliest forms of writing cuneiform, impressed into clay tablets from Mesopotamia, all for relatively modest sums. The only signatures that are encountered in ancient writing are those of the scribes or the seal impressions of those involved in a business transaction. These usually involved agricultural products, though I've had tablets discussing speculations in silver and copper, as well as several concerning the making of beer. It was not until the 15th century in Europe that accomplished people began to sign their names, preferring previously to leave the task of writing to those trained in the skill and adding only an X or a paraph in their own handwriting. This began to change about 1500, and it is at least theoretically possible to obtain a signed letter or document by many of the leading personalities of Western civilization since that time. There are, of course, numerous exceptions. With a combination of patience, money, and luck, it's possible to obtain Elizabeth I and Henry VIII or Sir Walter Raleigh, but Shakespeare is out of the question. Christopher Columbus is equally impossible, though you can fairly easily get documents signed by King and Queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella. After the 16th century, collectors do not encounter as many areas that are unobtainable, but rather encounter ind individuals whose letters and documents are rare for specific reasons. This may be a short life, one in which few documents would be produced, or an interest by collectors in the past to gather most of the letters by the person into a permanent collection, or more commonly, a person undistinguished in their lifetime, in the years afterwards, causing their descendants and others to discard their papers when they're encountered. For example, very popular authors during their lifetimes, such as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Emerson, and Holmes, are today readily available. Edgar Allan Poe, Herman Melville, and Emily Dickinson were far less popular or known in their day, and people consequently didn't save their letters, neither during their lifetimes nor in the decades after their deaths. Today, as a result, they are among the rarest of American autographs. Collectors can find out what is rare and why by reading through catalogs of historical letters and documents and by consulting with experienced dealers and auctioneers. How did I ever become a dealer in letters and documents? That's the question I'm most frequently asked. My background has always been that of a collector. When I was 10 years old, my father found an 1806 half dollar in change in his drugstore, and I sold it for $3 and a half. With that $3 of capital, I began buying and selling coins, first searching through change and then advertising in local newspapers to buy old coins. By the time I was 12, I was advertising regularly in numismatic publications and issuing price lists. Then in the mid-1950s, I traded a collection of English copper coins for a collection of American presidential letters. I continued on as purely a collector for a number of years, acquiring letters mainly dealing with the writer's thoughts on the importance of their lives. Eventually, however, I began to feel that I'd rather be the temporary owner of many letters 
than the permanent odor of the few that I could afford, and the idea of dealing in historical letters and documents became very compelling. In the late 1950s, at an auction of an estate of a rare book dealer in New Hampshire, I intended to acquire several letters from my collection, but got more than carried away with my fascination, and I bought far too much, becoming in one swoop the incorrigible collector and a neophyte dealer to pay for it all. The success of my business has been in large part because I am a collector myself and have designed my business for other collectors like myself, people who are interested in various areas of history but do not have the in-depth knowledge and specialized knowledge of the professional scholar or writer. My catalogs have been written from this perspective. They're not written with the presumption that anyone interested in the specific subject being offered will know everything about its background. The other very common question I'm asked is, where do you find all of these things? The most common source are the descendants of the recipients of the letters and documents. A descendant of an officer in the Civil War may have a series of military commissions signed by the presidents, chronicling his ancestors' rise to the military ranks. A descendant of a postmaster general earlier in this century may still have the appointment. Most who have worked in high government offices have saved the important letters and documents that they received. Persons who were in correspondence with authors and artists and composers, in most cases, cherished cherish these letters. And they remained in their family archives until a generation when the personal collection is no longer as compelling as the financial value. The second most common source of material for us are the collectors of historical letters and documents. The least common, but by far the most exciting, is where a trunk of material is found in an attic basement or some other storage without anyone having any idea that there's anything important in it. There certainly are still trunks in the attics. Several years ago, a Dutch couple came to my office with a suitcase full of musical manuscripts, a suitcase that had accompanied them from Holland when they immigrated at the outbreak of the Second World War. It contained, they always believed, family papers, and it remained unopened for 40 years. The couple retired from business in New York and began to go through the possessions they had, had accumulated in anticipation of moving to a smaller house. No one in the family had been a musician, and they could not understand why musical compositions would be found in, the, in this suitcase. It was discovered that these were Johannes Brahms' working manuscripts, not known to exist. No one ever discovered how or why the couple's ancestors had obtained the manuscript sometime around the turn of the century, but their suitcase of family papers was sold for more than half a million dollars. Sometimes treasures aren't in the trunk in the attic. They're in the filing cabinet right under your nose, misfiled. Frederick Law Olmsted's original plans for Central Park were discovered misfiled among the tens of thousands of architectural plans in his house when his papers were purchased by the National Park Service. These plans had been described in all reference books as having been lost forever, and there was no record of them at any point having existed, but they simply had been mislabeled by a file clerk 100 years ago. Recently, it was a case of a dozen trunks in a warehouse at Warner Brothers. They had been mislabeled also, and for 50 years they had been sitting there mislabeled. For 50 years, much of the Broadway show music of George Gershwin and Jerome Curran remained unknown. During the 1920s and 1930s, only the most popular individual songs would be printed as sheet music, very rarely the complete show. And these trunks contained all of the musical scripts from the Gershwin and Curran shows, and they were placed in these trunks when the shows closed. 30 minutes of Jerome Curran's showboat has recently been recorded, the first time that it's been heard since the show opened on Broadway. 
The Gershwin revivals that have been receiving so much publicity recently during the past year have mostly come from these trunks at Warner Brothers. In this modern era, it isn't always the trunk in the attic. One time it was glad trash bags in the basement. For sheer drama, the discovery of Admiral Byrd's polar journals I don't think can be topped. Several years ago, the bank representing the Byrd estate received a call from a suburban Boston couple who had recently purchased a home and had found trash bags in their basement containing paper, clothing, and all kinds of rubbish, which evidently at one time had something to do with Admiral Byrd. The bank had it removed to a warehouse and called me. Should they keep it or throw it out? I can never resist. I literally felt like a trash man, emptying bag after bag of rotten clothing, half-eaten boxes of candy, hundreds of Christmas cards, when out fell a badly stained and water-soaked journal. Within a few minutes, I realized what it was, and I found the key entry, which was written in pencil up and down all over the page. We should be at the pole now, Radio that we have reached the pole and are now returning on one motor with a bad oil leak, but we expect to be able to make it to Spitsbergen. This was all in the handwriting of Admiral Byrd, and it was written as he circled the North Pole in the first flight over that point. Of greater importance as the trash poured out of the bags were the journals from the South Pole, containing all of his communications with his wife during the years that he spent there. But for me, the most fascinating part was a map of Antarctica which he had written on, as I write this message, we are circling the South Pole. The temperature is 40 degrees below zero. On the other side of the pole, we are looking into that vast unknown area beyond the pole. What lies there, we know not. The heart and soul of Admiral Byrd, as well as America's Antarctic exploration efforts, had indeed been found in green glad trash bags in a Boston basement. Those went to Ohio State University, incidentally, for at $160,000 for the estate. The value of historical letters and documents are based upon rarity, the interest of collectors in material by that person, and the content of the particular letter or document. Rarity and the interest of collectors are the least of these complex factors. Unlike such things as rare coins and postage stamps, there are actually very few historical letters or documents available. Numerous families have given their papers to university libraries or state historical societies, and other, many other major collections have been purchased by them. From a dealer's standpoint, this can be very frustrating because you can have clients for something but find it completely impossible to locate anything to satisfy the needs. It is the interpretation of the significance and the importance of the content of letters that creates the differences of opinion in this field and makes it most interesting. The dealer must have a knowledge of just how significant interesting content is when written by authors. An inflammatory letter written by George Bernard Shaw, while very interesting and amusing, is not nearly as significant as a similar letter written by the author of 1984, George Orwell. Shaw normally expressed his feelings in his letters. Orwell rarely did. Similar feelings, when expressed by Herbert Hoover in a letter, will be more valuable than if expressed by Harry Truman, even though Truman generally is of more interest to collectors. Values of historical letters and documents are, when compared to other fields of collecting, quite modest. Malcolm Forbes, after spending several million dollars at an auction sale, was asked about this, and he said that for what he had just paid, he had bought a very significant part of American history, and for the same amount of money, he could have had a third-rate painting by a second-rate impressionist. 
Here are some examples of what documents and letters have actually sold for recently. Under $100. Generally, you get letters of minor authors, politicians, artists, military leaders, musical conductors, vice presidents, civil war generals, and so on. There's actually an awful lot available under $100. If you put your range up to $1,000, almost all of the American presidents fit into this category, including people like Jackson and Grant and both Roosevelt's. All but a few of the kings and queens of England and France since 1600 fall into this category. Most of the signers of such things as the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And most of the major people you can find in that price range. Moving up from there, and depending upon content, you get in the, up to the $5,000 range, you can get Ernest Hemingway, John Kennedy, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson. And most of the major composers fit into this price category. Moving up to 10,000, you add on people like Washington and Lincoln, Henry VIII, Custer, Elizabeth I, Sigmund Freud, Benjamin Franklin. And then really moving up into the ten dollars to $25,000 range, you pretty much are opening up almost everybody. People like Raphael, Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, Johann Sebastian Bach. One more step and you have Hernando Cortez, Peter Paul Rubens, Blake. Then if you really want to go on the unlimited budget basis, Igor Stravinsky's papers were sold a few years ago for $5.5 million. Mozart's Nine Symphonies was sold a few months ago for $4.6 million. The other most commonly asked question I run into is people ask me, what's the most interesting letter or document that you've ever had? The only answer I can give to reporters in this situation is to ask them what they are interested in, because otherwise it really doesn't have any meaning. Even then, it's a very difficult question to answer. If someone's interested in music, is it a letter by Hector Berlioz commenting about his writing of the damnation of Faust? It is I who am damned. I would like to send Faust to the devil. Or Felix Mendelssohn writing about a piece he has written. If the right words are hit at, I'm sure that piece will be liked very well by singers and listeners, but it will never do to sacred words. This song did very well as Hark the Herald Angels Sing when he finally did hit on the right words. Among artists, Paul Gauguin is probably unrivaled in his ability to communicate his feelings. In my works, there is nothing which surprises, baffles, if it is not this savagery, and that is why it is inimitable. A man's work is the explanation of that man. I see everything so black in the future, the struggle so compromised by the young group. In American history, is the best letter Sam Adams, the firebrand of the revolution, writing in 1772? This country must shake off their intolerable burdens at all events. Every day strengthens our oppressors and weakens us. Or his cousin, John, President John Adams, still full of revenge in 1813. No early and active agent in the revolution ever was or will be forgiven till all the early and active, active enemies of it and their children and disciples are dead. The feisty Andrew Jackson is certainly well characterized by a letter written in the mid-1820s challenging the governor of Tennessee to a duel, or writing about Texas, regain it we must at the point of the bayonet from Great Britain. It certainly is a characteristic side of Davy Crockett that we see in an 1829 letter defending his backwood manners. I have enemies who would take much pleasure in magnifying the plain rusticity of my manner. I have never enjoyed the advantages which many have abused. I've never so far prostituted the humble advantages I do enjoy. In the field of literature, is the best letter Henry David Thoreau? My neighbors select granite for the underpinning of their houses. 
They build their fences of stone, but they do not themselves rest on an underpinning of granite truth. Their sills are rotten. Well, the original Tom Wolfe, which has to be my all-time favorite letter, because I didn't expect it, written in 1938, the year before his death and the year before the publication of his most famous book, I have found something which is the most important discovery of my whole life. You can't go home again. Back to your childhood, back to your town, your people, back to the father you have lost, back, back to the solacements of time and memory. For people who have spent extensive time in psychotherapy, Sigmund Freud writing, one has to learn how to rise above one's emotional life, certainly has meaning. Or Andrew Carnegie, completely playing against type, the man who dies possessed of great sums dies disgraced. It's rare to see a letter of Napoleon in which he expresses any self-doubt at all, but he certainly did so in an extremely rare handwritten letter that he wrote to Marie Louise during his retreat from Russia. I have fought some great battles. I've had the advantage. Now I'm suffering huge losses. Albert Einstein's letters were far more concerned with human welfare than with science. His activities in the 1930s to help other European Jews escape Hitler are summed up in a letter written in June of, the, of 1939. The power of resistance which has enabled the Jewish people to survive for thousands of years has been based to a large extent on traditions of mutual helpfulness. In these years of affliction, our readiness to help one another is being put to an especially severe test. We have no other means of self-defense than our solidarity and the knowledge that the cause is momentous and sacred. In the field of exploration, I have only one nominee for the best letter. It was a handwritten letter in pencil by Robert F. Scott, written from latitude 79.50 after reaching the South Pole and realizing he could never get back to his base camp. This is the ultimate of British understatement. I fear we must go and that it leaves the expedition in a bad muddle. But we have been to the pole and we shall die like gentlemen. I regret only for the women we leave behind. If this diary is found, it will show how we stuck by dying companions and fought this thing out to the end. I think this will show that the spirit of pluck and the power to endure has not passed out of the race. We very nearly came through, and it's a pity to have missed it. <laughs> I don't think I could have written that. For many collectors, their only mistakes have been in not acquiring important pieces offered to them, and frequently these have turned out to be what they thought were the best. Mary Hyde, one of America's greatest collectors of literary letters and manuscripts, says that her only regret was that she had not acquired everything possible when she first began many decades ago, because those opportunities are lost forever. She's not the only veteran collector to speak wistfully of what was missed. Many have, others have as well. Personally, as a collector of Western Americana, I've always regretted that the most remarkable letter of an outlaw eluded me. It was written by Jesse James in 1875. I and Frank have been lied on and persecuted enough. We cannot stand everything. What did you mean by telling that we stole Dr. Yates's horse? They are no men in Missouri who scorn horse thieves more than we do. If you value your life, you better retract your slander. The average collector, if you can use such a term, of historical letters and documents is an intelligent, self-assured person with a sense of curiosity about people and subjects. They put a great deal of themselves into the building of their collections, 
The collections represent their interests, and the process of deciding what is included and what is excluded is a very personal one. The collectors are as varied in their interests and professional lives as the material they collect, and it's quite, quite rare when I meet a collector who is not a very interesting person. People collect from one piece framed with a portrait to thousands of pieces in files. Several individuals in this country and in Europe have built their own private libraries in the same manner that Pierpont Morgan and Henry Huntington did at the turn of the century. Most of these collectors seek no publicity, but make their collections available to researchers and writers so they can be shared with others. The most well-known of these on this scale is Malcolm Forbes, who maintains his museum on Fifth Avenue here, where many of the treasures from his collection are displayed. Another major collector in Santa Barbara, a real estate developer, purchased a huge estate across from his own home to move his collection into, which had outgrown his house. But yet another that I know in Paris let his collection completely take over his house, and he bought an apartment nearby. <laughs> Whatever the scale of collecting, I've always found that the letters and documents mean a great deal to collectors. In many respects, I feel that I have many satellite collections of my own that I place important pieces into. And the emotional rapport which I have with collectors is very important to me. This past summer, I, saw, I sold a group of presidential letters to a collector I knew would appreciate them. I had taken the letters home and spent an evening reading them with my wife. They were letters I would love to have kept for myself. After buying them, this collector called me literally every day for a week, telling me that he and his wife had read them over the night before and how much they enjoyed them. That's about the only thing that makes it possible to part with things that have that kind of meaning. Collecting on the part of institutions, university libraries, rare book and manuscript sections of public libraries and historical societies, has shown a very significant change in the past decade, in part because of tighter overall budgets and also because institutions have not found any steady supply of appropriate material being offered to them. Many now operate on the basis of raising money when a collection is offered. The last of the institutions with large yearly budgets were those in the Southwest funded by oil revenues, and they've suffered as the rest of us have benefited from the fall in oil prices. But libraries are still the major acquirers of complete archives, the papers of one person or one institution. Many of these collections are acquired by purchase, and many others as gifts. In either case, they have to be appraised, either to determine what will be paid for them or what amount the donor can claim as a charitable tax deduction. And that's where I come in. Logistically, some of these collections can be nightmares. But for satisfying intellectual curiosity, nothing compares to them. To properly appraise such collections, you have to have an intimate knowledge of the person who created them, their activities and habits, which enables you to anticipate what they would have saved, what they would have thrown away, and what papers that would never have been created by them. You get a real sense of what people actually talk about on the telephone by seeing what's missing from their papers. You also have to quickly gain a thorough knowledge of how different activities are carried out. For example, when I was hired by the National Park Service to evaluate the Frederick Law Olmsted papers, the pioneer landscape architect, I first read several books about the history of landscape architecture. Then I visited the oldest landscape architectural firm in America to find out how they operated, how they kept their files, what was created, what were the standard methods of operation. I then went to Washington and I met with a group from the American Society of Landscape Architects and we talked about any practical use that these drawings could be a hundred years later. And it was interesting because they were of no use
because of pollution. The plants that you could put in 100 years ago and 75 and 50 years ago don't work today because pollution would kill them all off. So essentially, it turned into being a purely uh, archival-type collection. All of this was done before I ever set foot inside the Olmsted building. The appraisal of the archives of the Northern Pacific Railroad, which was 10 million uncatalogued pieces, was a challenge in every respect. Before we could even begin the appraisal, we had to wire the unlighted uh, warehouse for electricity so we could see what we were doing. Then we had to uh, rent hydraulic platforms to get up to the tops of the piles, which would, everything was piled 20 feet high in there. The appraisal of the Franklin D. Roosevelt family papers proceeded pretty much as I expected until I came to the Roosevelt home movies. Anticipating great footage of FDR's meetings with Churchill and important administration leaders, I could not have been more surprised to find that these actually were home movies. You saw Churchill sitting with FDR at Hyde Park, but the camera followed the antics of some kid with only occasional shots of Churchill and FDR. The inaugural in 1941 was remarkable. It was filmed the same way. You saw small children running around, and then you saw these two legs with braces on them, and you realize that this was the scene behind Roosevelt as he gave his inaugural address. Mark Twain's papers were enhanced by the presence of the original drawings of Huckleberry Finn, drawings which I had never forget, forgotten as a kid from reading that book the first time. Gone with the Wind came alive when I worked on the papers of director George Cukor. The letters from Margaret Mitchell about her original intent and the meaning of Gone with the Wind were really incredible. Appraising the archives of RKO Pictures was a real overload of nostalgia. With the RKO archives, we had the, the film files on a thousand movies containing every stage of the script ideas from the original inception, the memos, everything as to how all of these movies had been put together. We had the original manuscripts and story ideas of King Kong, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Gunga Din, Top Hat, and most important of all, Citizen Kane, which started out as a two-page story idea. Dealers always have to be on the lookout for forgeries. Collectors don't need to be as concerned as long as they are involved with reliable dealers. But in selecting these dealers, collectors should ask about forgeries and what methods they use to ensure that everything is genuine. As in any field, the expert will be happy to answer such questions and is likely to give you far more information than you want. There are many forgeries around, but they are not often offered to the major dealers because they will be detected. Instead, they are offered for sale in the peripheral market, among dealers who don't specialize in autograph material, but deal in paper collectibles, ephemera, and so on, the flea market type of situation. Detecting forgeries is sometimes a very complex procedure, but usually it's not. Most forgeries are readily unmasked through a number of common characteristics. These include slow and hesitating strokes, a drawn appearance, because in fact they are being drawn, individual letters too carefully formed. If you can read Charles Dickens, it's probably a fake, because in a genuine Charles Dickens signature, it's very hard to read it. There's too much ink at the start and the, the ending of strokes where a forger puts his pen down and then very carefully begins writing. Terminology out of date. Charles Dickens letters that they, you'd not quite say have a nice day, but I've had a lot of the George Washington letters saying yours truly, sincerely yours. Things that people never would say at that period of time. Several forgeries have been major media stories in recent years. None has been more complex than that of the Mormon forger, con man and murderer, Mark Hoffman.
Hoffman created forgeries of printing that went undetected until his overall fraud unraveled. He created forgeries of letters based on unprecedented research and scientific preparation. He fabricated the story of a complete archive that didn't exist, and he killed two people and tried for a third to cover up all of these frauds. I first met Mark Hoffman sometime in the late 1970s. He was an introverted person, someone you would never really get to know, but a person who appeared to be a serious collector, scholar, and part-time dealer in Mormon historical material. He was all of these things, but beneath this surface, he was also beginning to experiment with forging letters of great importance to Mormon history. The first forgeries created by Hoffman did not seriously challenge any teachings of the Mormon Church, and he planned his discoveries of these documents very carefully. Their provenance was meticulously worked out. Representing himself as a believing member of the Mormon Church and an amateur historian, he always portrayed his interest as protecting the history of the church, and he always allowed church historians to tell him of the importance of what he had found. Hoffman was also experimenting with the forging of printing, and his knowledge and ability in this area appears to be unrivaled. The forgery of the first recorded but otherwise unknown example of printing in America, the Oath of Freeman, combined superb technical skills and Hoffman's extraordinary ability to create a plausible story of its discovery. To do this, he first forged a broadside with the title Oath of Freeman. Then he penciled on the back of it $25 in the, in the style of a New York City dealer who offers such printed pieces for sale in a large bookshop. Hoffman visited the bookshop, placed the piece into the dealer's stock, went back and retrieved it, and paid the $25. What he got for it was the receipt that said, One Broadside Oath of Freeman. He had his story as to where it came from and shortly afterwards began negotiating its sale for a million and a half dollars. With the success of his first autograph forgeries and the, the printing forgeries, he began to work on what many believed to be the basis for his whole scheme, the rewriting of Mormon church history. Hoffman, according to his later confession, believed that his second group of forged letters accurately represented what actually did happen in Mormon church history, not what the church claimed to have happened. With the background of his other discoveries, these new letters were accepted by the church, despite their theological implications. Hoffman's overall fraud began to unravel shortly before the killings because his ultimate forgery, the creation of a fictitious collection, the McClellan Papers, was sold over and over again to a number of people, as well as to the Mormon church itself. Even before these multiple sales were discovered, purchasers were pressing Hoffman to show him their collection. He knew he had to come up with some proof that they actually existed. And he obtained from me two large pieces of an Egyptian book of the dead from the second century AD, containing many drawings along with the text. These he claimed were Joseph Smith's original source for the book of Abraham. This guy didn't think small. While the pieces he cut up from my Egyptian book of the dead satisfied some of these people, Steve Christensen, who had purchased another major forgery from Hoffman and had arranged a loan from the Mormon Church of $180,000 as a down payment on the collection, discovered that he had been selling the collection to other people as well and threatened legal action if the money wasn't repaid immediately. At exactly the same time, I called Hoffman, telling him that I'd be visiting collectors in Salt Lake City two weeks later, many of the same collectors that he had sold forgeries to, but more importantly, the same people that he had been showing my Book of the Dead to. 
It would not be possible that I could visit Salt Lake City and not learn what he was up to. Some part of this was certainly going to come apart. Hoffman decided to begin killing his victims and delivered a bomb to Christensen's office, followed by another one to Christensen's partner's house. Christensen was killed that morning. The wife of his partner was killed in the afternoon. Two days later, a third bomb went off in Hoffman's car, which had the, literally had the name of another collector on it. But this time it got Hoffman, but it did not fatally injure him. It was not until Hoffman's overall fraud began to unravel because the story of the bomb in the car just didn't work out forensically in terms of what he told the police, that he became suspect in all of these other pieces as well. When the police and prosecutors brought a whole collection of pieces to me, about 25 or 30 pieces that Hoffman had sold, they told me that two or three were suspected of being forgeries, but everything else seemed to be okay. But somewhat putting Mark Hoffman into perspective here, in under 30 minutes, it was evident that all the pieces were forgeries, just based on the handwriting. There was something wrong in every case. In another few minutes, using an ultraviolet lamp, you could see a bright blue fluorescence with every piece. They had all been chemically treated, and there was no question they were all fakes. After a preliminary trial, the evidence against Hoffman was overwhelming, and he pleaded guilty, receiving Utah's version of life imprisonment. That's five years to life. As part of the plea bargain arrangement, Hoffman agreed to a series of interviews about his forgeries and about his killings. To me, the most interesting comment was the last one. The prosecutor asked Hoffman, was there any concern on your part that they were forgeries? And these people, your friends, who had given you money, were now investing sentiment and emotion in these documents. Hoffman replied, that didn't cause concern. It's not so much what was genuine or what isn't as what people believe is genuine. The will to believe, the essential element in any successful fraud, was no less important in the major journalistic scandal of modern times, the Hitler Diaries. The paper, ink, and handwriting were not the key elements in the success of this fraud. The human elements of ambition, secrecy, and greed propelled these inept forgeries into the fraud of the century. For it to be successful, it was necessary to overcome many journalistic checkpoints, and these were overcome by the emotional reactions of the victims themselves. At many points, the, the hoax could have and should have unraveled. But once out of the hands of the forger, the victims carried the hoax onto the front pages of magazines and newspapers throughout the world. The story of the Hitler Diaries begins in 1973, when Gerd Heidemann, Stern Magazine's investigative reporter bought Hermann Goering's yacht, the Karen II. Its ownership led him into the world of retired Nazis and into contact with a major collector of Nazi memorabilia. This collector showed Heidemann his prized possession, a Hitler diary. Heidemann reported seeing the diary to his editors and was told by the publisher that he didn't, quote, want to read or hear about any more of your Nazi scheitze. Peter Koch, Stern's editor-in-chief, was even more blunt, forbidding Heidemann to pursue any Nazi stories at all, calling him mentally deranged. Rational people would assume that this would be the end of the story, but not at Stern magazine. Heidemann was able to disappear, in a sense, with the editors not caring what he was doing as long as they, he wasn't reporting to them. The head of the history section, however, was interested in this, and the two of them secretly pursued the Hitler diaries. And very shortly afterwards, 
Heidemann had tracked down the source of the diaries, Conrad Kujau, and had offered him over a million dollars for the diaries, which was instantly accepted. At that point, they did not exist. They had not as yet been written. Heidemann and his editor then faced the dilemma of how to raise this money. They could not go to the editors. They had both defied direct orders and devoted six months to the diary project. They decided to go to the supremely self-confident chairman of, of Stern Magazine's parent company, who didn't like Stern's editor and was delighted to have the opportunity to scoop him. The chairman never even asked Heidemann to account for the money given to him. Heidemann simply told him how much he wanted, and it was given to him in cash, in the end, over $5 million. To step back for a minute and to really appreciate the absurdity of all of this, at this point in the story, you have Kujau defrauding Heidemann by selling him fake diaries. Heidemann was cheating Kujau by not turning over to him all of the money Stern was actually paying for the diaries. Heidemann was also defrauding Stern as well, and Stern's management, in turn, was, were deceiving the editors. The next time that the diaries should have been proven false was when Heidemann showed one to an SS general, a diary that referred to events that that general was involved in, events that the general said never happened. Was Heidemann's confidence shaken? Certainly not. He explained to the general that the diary reflected what Hitler intended to do, but was never able to carry out. In 1981, Stern's editor, Peter Koch, was told of his chairman's coup. He hardly questioned the authenticity of the diaries. They must be genuine, he said. The chairman had paid millions of dollars for them, and it would be unthinkable that he could have done that without having them authenticated. Koch certainly had his own clues that something was wrong here. He went to visit Heidemann to talk about the diaries. He found that Heidemann had bought two new apartments to put Hitler memorabilia into. Heidemann told him that he was in the process of buying Hitler's boyhood home. But I thought the best thing was when Heidemann showed Peter Koch Hitler's suicide gun. Koch pointed out it was the wrong caliber and the wrong make, but that didn't bother anybody either. That, of course, came from Conrad Cujau. When it came time to publish the diaries, it was realized that they would have to bring in outside experts to prove their authenticity because other publications would not follow the Stern's uh, belief in these. This, of course, should have been the end of the story. But the three experts all presented reports indicating the diaries were genuine. All three had been supplied by Stern with copies of Hitler's handwriting, obtained, Stern said, from the Federal Archives of Germany. In fact, they were Conrad Kujau forgeries as well. These had been infiltrated into Stern's own files. So the experts were all correct. The handwriting all matched, but none of it was Hitler. The authentication of the diaries by the historians involved was just as inept. They clearly focused on the sensationalism of the story, and not a single historian took the time to properly investigate the content, which would have revealed that the diary entries coincide exactly with a private book about Hitler. The subjective opinions, unchallenged by historians, were certainly a conscious effort by Kujau to make the diaries acceptable and saleable. They portray Hitler neither as a monster nor as a munificent leader, but rather as a leader whom the German people put into power at a time of very great economic hardship, a leader who would repudiate the terms imposed upon Germany at the end of the First World War, a leader who might only be guilty of not controlling his fanatical followers. The diaries create a Hitler which many people wanted to believe was real. Newsweek's cautious confidence in the diaries' authenticity certainly appeared to be well-founded. And the atmosphere in the editor's office certainly reflected this. 
An historian specializing in the Third Reich had been hired by Newsweek and after examining all of the diaries, reported that they were likely to be genuine. Despite this confidence, I was hired by, the, by Newsweek as their special consultant. The editor's conf confidence in the story, which was shrouded in great secrecy at Newsweek, seemed unaffected as I kept pointing out to him that there was simply no evidence that they were genuine, no evidence that, were, that they were not genuine, there was just no evidence. I felt that the Hitler's diary story, without any proven basis at all, had taken on a life of its own. It was almost like the Mark Hoffman situation. It's what people wanted to believe in. It didn't really matter whether it was true or not. There was a real sense that the train was rolling and that I was trying to stand in front of it. And the, and the historians being consulted were so overawed by the apparent importance of the story that they weren't looking at these diaries with the scrutiny that they would in an academic setting. They were looking at it in a news sense where everybody was pushing every minute to come up with answers. The attacks on the diary's authenticity were immediate and generally unfounded and misinformed. I had naively believed that once the existence of the diaries was made public, Stern would be pressed by the news media to have them properly authenticated. I certainly expected the thrust of the news media coverage to be on this fact, but that was certainly not the case. The editor-in-chief of Stern magazine, Peter Koch, arrived in New York the following week with the first and last volumes of the diaries. CBS News invited him to appear on the morning news program and suggested that Koch should meet with me. It was on the set of the morning news that I first saw the diaries. There were dozens and dozens of obvious reasons that they were fakes. I was, however, very impressed with Koch's interview. He believed with absolute sincerity that there was no possibility that the diaries were fakes. He could see no reason for further examinations because three experts had proclaimed them genuine. And the testimony of any one of these experts in a criminal case, he stated, would be sufficient grounds for conviction. During a lengthy breakfast meeting, I realized Koch would never be convinced without overwhelming physical evidence, and I therefore avoided discussing the diaries. The invitation to analyze the diaries, make photocopies, and do all the work that I wanted to to get hard evidence was largely a result of a camaraderie that built up over that breakfast as we discussed ski racing and helicopter skiing. We had many mutual friends and experiences in these fields. The Hitler diary hoax, which had begun and was perpetuated by decisions based on personal rather than journalistic considerations, was finally beginning to unravel. Not because Koch thought that the diaries should be thoroughly examined, but because he couldn't see any harm in letting a fellow skier go over them. It was personally very flattering, but it instantly illustrated just how this hoax had gone so far. With my examination and subsequent meeting with Stern's editors, the Hitler diary hoax did finally come to an end after two years, designed to cover whatever he actually did because nobody could really sort out whether he was in on it with Kujau or whether he was so gullible and was actually just defrauding Stern magazine, so it became a kind of catch-all uh, for him. But whatever the reality was, hopefully the Hitler diary fraud will stay as the main journalistic hoax for many years to come. I began my talk by stating that the world of historical letters and documents offers an incredible insight into human nature. The Mormon forgeries and the Hitler diary hoax are certainly the darker side of it. For me, this world has been a wonderful time machine into the past, into the lives of our heroes, and in these cases, into the cases of two villains. Thank you. If there are any questions, I will be glad.
No, no, the, the Hitler diary thing, it's a journalistic hoax. It's, it, it was a joke, but... Just, just commenting on what Terry was saying, the, what Hoffman did, people never anticipated anyone would put the effort into what Hoffman did. He, uh, he got original paper by stealing it out of libraries, basically, stealing end papers and so on. And he treated, would treat this paper for two years with bread mold, so it would have the correct mold patterns. In one book that I saw where he put the t a title page in, I looked at it. I'm not an expert in printing. I couldn't tell the difference. The water stains matched. And he had worked over and over to get the, wa the water stain on the title page to match the other pages and had been, you know, doing these things and apparently discarded lots of them. He did things such as uh, to get postmarks, he used an electroplating process uh, to create his ink so that the dating would be correct. He would get a letter of the period and scrape the ink off of it and use this in the mix. It was absolutely incredible what he did, and the printing looked fantastic to me, but I'm not an expert in that. But it's, it's scary how good that was. Fortunately, on the handwriting, he aged the printer's ink and, and writing ink were treated differently, and he used ozone on the printer's ink. Uh, and apparently it fluoresced normally, and there was nothing unusual. But with the handwriting, if you magnify it, but you have to magnify it up to about 80 times, it looks like a reptile. And it, with all these tiny little cracks, but the main thing is they all fluoresce bright blue, and you can actually see paintbrush strokes, and you can see how it was hung up in, in the way the that the chemicals ran down from the letters. But they are extremely well done. The the, the Hitler thing is is a journalistic hoax. That's it's. I mean, they were they really are a joke. And, and he had letters mixed up. He had what on one of the diaries it was supposed to be A H in, in old German, but it was A F uh, on one of the covers because he couldn't read a, a old German. There are lots and lots of things like this in it. But as a journalistic hoax, uh, to take all the people that he did, uh, he had quite a job. I had lunch at Newsweek about a year afterwards and uh, with Maynard Parker, the editor, and we were at what they call a cafeteria, that palace hotel across the street. And I said, Maynard, you'll never guess what I have in my briefcase. And he said, what? I said, I have Heinrich Himmler's diaries. And he said, go to Time magazine, please. <laughs>